Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest today is Andy Slavitt. Andy is a leading expert on healthcare in America as acting administrator of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services under President Obama. He took over management of healthcare.gov after a difficult rollout and got it up and running. He's the founder of United States of Care, the host of the In the Bubble podcast, and my friend. Today, after almost a century of trying, Today, after over a year of debate, today, after all the votes have been tallied, health insurance reform becomes law in the United States. He obviously has doubled down on defending Obamacare. We think it's a terrible piece of legislation. We're certainly going to be voting on that. A lot of people in the Senate and a lot of people in the House are committed to repealing and replacing this disastrous law with a health care plan. The report says that if the new legislation is passed by next year, some 14 million more Americans will be without health insurance than would otherwise be the The Trump case. administration has decided not to reopen Obamacare markets for people who don't yet have health insurance. Former Vice President Joe Biden responded to the administration's decision against opening enrollment nationally, saying, quote, this callous decision will cost lives. Hi, it's Andy Slavitt, and we need to make sure that the coronavirus doesn't take its toll on our most vulnerable populations. Sorry, not sorry. Thank you so, so much, Andy, for joining us, especially because I know this is an incredibly busy time for you, not only with all of your expertise in policy surrounding healthcare and COVID-19. So I think my first question is just a really human one, which is how are you doing during this social isolation and how is your family coping? Yeah, I think for me personally, if I'm busy, I'm good. So if I'm sitting around feeling like a victim, I probably would be under the sofa. Right. But my nature is that if there's a lot going on and there's a lot to do and there's any way I can be helpful, then I'm fully engaged and I'm probably at my best. I think the other thing for us, my wife and I have a 21-year-old and an 18-year-old, and sorry for them, good for us, they're forced now to spend time with their parents. Right. And we would probably be at the bottom of that list if you know 21 and (laughs) 18-year-olds. And so you may be at the bottom of the list, but we're also at the top of the list. And so it's really great to get to spend some time with that because we really cherish that. And like everybody, I hope, looks for a good in, in what is an incredibly trying, difficult time. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mentioned keeping busy because I've been talking a lot about how if we can find our purpose in this and what's happening, and usually that means being of service in times of need, that we're going to be okay. It's a tribute to those scientists and innovators, right? That they recognize now's the time. Heroes are born Heroes are born during FUBAR, right? When things are all messed up beyond recognition, that's when the heroes step forward and create things, invent things, develop things that change the world. And that's what's needed right now. 
And every indication that we've gotten so far is that that's what's happening. You know, I mentioned Abbott. We've heard about other drugs potentially that are coming out. You know, it's not like we're in a situation where, oh my goodness, it's been three weeks. No one said anything. Oh my goodness, it's been four weeks. No one's even suggested that there's any hope and, you know, there's no options coming. That's not what we're getting at all. If anything, we kind of rush to judgment and try to hope, you know, hydrochloroquine is going to be the ultimate this or that. And, you know, if anything, we have so much innovation coming, we may have to be a little bit more patient. It's those of us that keep busy as a distraction to the issues that are facing us personally and throughout the world, throughout history, throughout generational struggle. I think those people that use keeping busy as a coping mechanism, those are the people that are having a very hard time right now because, you know, they kind of have to sit with themselves. Yeah. I think you make a great point, which is not to keep busy to avoid the emotions that you're feeling. I think it's, it's always tended to be a mistake for me or for most people I know if they deny the truth of what they're feeling because that can, you can only do that for so long. But I think, you know, there is something about the way you choose to look at certain situations. And, you know, I'm going to say from the start, this is going to be one of the most challenging and in some cases, uh, most tragic experiences that any of us live with and go through in our lives. And that's true economically. It's true that we don't have the social support structure, scared about health. But the other side of that, Alyssa, is that, you know, I'm 53 years old. My generation has never really been asked to sacrifice anything. If I go to the grocery store and they don't have my brand of toothpaste, right. I feel like my rights have been violated. And I think that's going to be different going forward because we're getting a new appreciation for there have been people that have sacrificed for me so that I could be here generations ago. And, you know, we've never been asked to do that. And so we do our part by staying in, hashtag stay home, to let our scientists do what they need to do to get ahead of this thing, to allow our frontline healthcare workers not to be overwhelmed with people and to do our part, whatever that is. If that means bringing soup to a neighbor, if that means calling someone who you think is lonely, whatever that is, I think is a great way to make sure that this is meaningful time. It's always amazing to me, too, that we tend to, and I am certainly guilty of this, forget about, like, the generational struggle. Like, I look at even just where we've come in one generation in my family. My mom was on social assistance programs when she was a child. They had no money. She basically says, you know, that she grew up on Tootsie Rolls and had absolutely nothing. And her father was abusive, you know, and all, and it goes on and on and on, right? And then you think about her sacrifice and what she was able to do in just a generation in raising me and my brother to live in a world where we didn't have to struggle and that we didn't have to deal with the abuse. And the cycle has been broken. And I always have to remind myself sometimes in her parenting style that this is a woman who is kind of making it up as she goes along because she didn't have the role models. And I think all of us right now, because this is such an unprecedented time, are kind of making it up as we go along. We don't know what this kind of devastation is going, on a global sense, what it's going to do in the collective pain 
and what lessons we're going to learn and how we're going to come out on the other side of this. I know we're all going to fight for us to be stronger and better, but we don't we don't really know. So we're making this up as we go along, right? And we keep hearing stories after stories, these amazing stories of people 98 years old, 102 years old, who are overcoming this illness or who have been hospitalized and then made a miraculous recovery. Those are the people that have had to struggle before and knew how to fight, right? And so we kind of have to dig deep and really try to figure out how to come out of this on the other side for the better. And speaking of that, I want to talk to you about, you know, you were the acting administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Studies during the Obama administration. What does the administrator of the CMS do? Well, so to start with, I think there's probably three things you should know about CMS. The first is that it's big. Our budget's a trillion dollars. Think about it as 25% of the federal budget. By just to just to size it for you, Department of Defense is probably 600 billion would be the next largest. I think a lot of us are obviously wishing President Obama was still in office to help manage this crisis. But how do you think the Obama administration would have handled this crisis differently than the Trump administration has? You and I both have very similar political points of view, mm-hmm. and you know we could probably spend a lot of time critiquing what's happened so far. And I will spend a little bit of time just in response to your question. But I think the reality is we have to navigate from where we are now, not where we wish we were. And there's a lot of people's lives at stake right now. So I think we're going to have plenty of opportunity to be critical of the obvious things that have gone wrong. I've not been spending my time harping on them because right now we're trying to save every life we can. The short answer is it would be hard to manage this worse. I don't care whether it's President Obama or anybody else. And the reason I say that is there were just a few classic mistakes that had been made. One was just not preparing and taking down the infrastructure to prepare. You said that you don't take responsibility, but you did disband the White House pandemic office and the officials that were working in that office left this administration abruptly. So what responsibility do you take to that? And the officials that worked in that office said that you that the White House lost valuable time because that office wasn't disbanded. What do you make of that? Well, I just think it's a nasty question because what we've done is, uh, and Tony had said numerous times that uh, we've saved thousands of lives because of the quick closing. I mean, you say you say we did that. I don't know anything you, about it. You don't know We're about spending, the, no, about I the don't reorganization know. that happened the, at the National it's Security It's the administration, Council. perhaps they do that. You know, people yeah, let it, people go. You know, we've all been behind in a project. In our, you know, and you can do an all-nighter and you can work the weekend and you can catch up. But when you're behind something that's growing exponentially, meaning you're behind something that is doubling every two to three days, yeah. then it's kind of like swimming after a speedboat that's 20 feet ahead of you and by the time you get to the 20 feet, the speedboat's 100 feet ahead of you. So being prepared in this sense is incredibly important. And they just simply weren't. Right. This is obvious. The second thing is that the best traits, the traits you want in a leader right now are disciplined, someone who's very skeptical, who looks for bad news, doesn't look for good news, someone yeah. who brings the best people around them, who respects science, who arms their troops, who makes quick, decisive decisions, and who can deal with and grapple 
the facts and the data in front of them. Instead of somebody who goes by gut instinct and intuition, looks for good news, looks to paint the picture, always wants to make sure that things that reflect well on them, and who doesn't really fundamentally respect data and science as much as they do their own instinct. And those are hard characteristics to lead a crisis through. I led the turnaround of healthcare.gov as an outsider as a lead firefighter back in 2013. Medicare Chief Marilyn Taverner, who oversaw the rocky rollout of the president's health care law, says she's stepping down at the end of February. I have a little bit of a sense of what helps in a crisis, and it is very hard in a crisis when you have a leadership that's like it is. So, you know, it's hard to prove a negative and say what Obama would have done differently. But I can tell you from my time there during the Ebola crisis and other things like that, Very fact-based, very fast-moving, very skeptical, very straight shooting. And remember, Obama didn't get the benefit of the doubt on anything he did. You know, he had to be incredibly forthcoming because he was criticized for the slightest misstep, whereas I think we've got a presidency now where he believes he can say whatever he likes without suffering consequences. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing that we're seeing about the Obama administration is that Trump has basically rolled back things out of spite. And the only reason why I bring that up is because one of the very simple things that Trump could have done is expand enrollment of the ACA during this crisis. But I believe that he just will not do anything that supports the ACA, even during this crisis where expanding it could have helped so much. We all know that small businesses are struggling right now. A lot of people are trying to figure out ways to help. Well, Shift4 is a payment processing company that supports thousands of restaurants and hotels, some of the hardest hit industries during this crisis. Well, they created an interesting way to help make your dollars to those businesses go further. If you visit www.shift4cares.com, you can purchase a gift card to any of the tens of thousands of small businesses across the country. For every card purchased, Shift 4, and that's number 4, so it's Shift number 4, will give an extra 5% to the businesses. That means a $100 gift card purchase will actually get $105 to the restaurant you've enjoyed so much. Their goal is to raise $200 million for small businesses and contribute $10 million extra in matches. So please go visit shift4cares.com. That's shift, numeral four, cares.com, and see how you can help out. Thank you so much. What do you think the long-term effects of not expanding access to health care during the coronavirus will be? Well, I think Trump would rather spend $100 on responding to a disaster than $5 presenting a disaster. And mm. so if you help people get coverage, whether it's through the ACA, whether it's automatically enrolling them in Medicaid, whatever it is, then they will be able to help prevent themselves from getting sick. They'll be able to take care of themselves because they'll be able to afford to. If you don't, then they're just going to end up getting sicker and it's going to cost more money. So it's not a good decision from a health standpoint. It's not a good decision from an economic standpoint. Maybe he thinks it's a good decision from a political standpoint, but you know, hard to know how he calculates the decisions he makes 
other than I think you're exactly right. There is a lot of spite and a lot of things that are involved besides thinking what's in the best interest of the public. It's a pretty high item on our agenda, as you know. And um, I would be shocked if we didn't uh, move forward to keep our commitment to the American people. It was the single worst piece of legislation among many bad pieces of legislation uh, passed in the first two years of the Obama presidency. The sooner we can go in a different direction, the better. The Trump administration surprised a lot of people today, even folks on the home team within the GOP, with a move to obliterate Obamacare. The administration initially argued parts of the law were unconstitutional, but with a two-sentence letter released in the dead of night, the Trump DOJ declared the whole thing should be thrown out. Even if you just look at the states that did not adopt Medicaid, the expansion of Medicaid, they include Florida and Georgia, right? So those states have governors who have had a really weak response to this virus. And, you know, those populations are going to suffer more, right? I mean, how do we keep allowing our politicians to discriminate and affect our health? No, think about it this way, to make your point. If you believe that health care and health insurance and access to health care is important for you, then the question has always been, if it's important for you, why is it not important for everybody? Some people believe it is, and some people believe that it isn't. But now imagine you get on the bus or you get on an airplane or, or you're in some public place. Don't you kind of want the person next to you to be healthy? Been taking care of themselves? Yeah. Right? There's nothing like a contagious disease to make you realize that we're only going to be as healthy as our least fortunate neighbor. Yes. So we have two choices in how we're going to respond to this, and I'm not sure which way we'll go. One will be the kind of classic gated community. I'm not mixing with others, me against the world, selfishness. And look, those are human emotions. People feel selfish and self-protective. So I'm not entirely bashing that, although, of course, I don't think that's the right answer for our country. The other answer is to do the opposite, which is to recognize that you've got to make sure that everybody has access to the things that everybody else has access to, because you're not going to be healthy if you can't keep the community healthy. And by the way, that also makes healthcare less expensive. That's why other right. countries are able to keep people healthier. But I mean, it feels like healthcare is being weaponized. Not only just between the parties, but also inside the Democratic Party. It's incredible how huge health care has become in this year's midterm elections, bigger even than in past elections when Republicans were hammering on Obamacare. If you look at Democrat-run ads, about 50 percent of them have to do with health care, and much of that focused on these pre-existing condition attacks. An overwhelming majority of Democrats, nearly 90 percent, agree health care is a key issue in 2020. In a recent story, New York Times national health care correspondent Abby Goodenough writes, though Democrats owned the health care issue in 2018, pointing a way forward, tear up the current system and start over, or build on gains in coverage and care that the Obama health law achieved, is proving tricky for the party's presidential candidates. And so you founded United States of Care, which is, for my listeners that don't know, a nonprofit that's devoted to expanding health care to all Americans outside of the partisan political process, right? So how do you feel that we can do this? So it's a long journey, but I think I'd liken it to things 
that we've changed in this country, like marriage equality, where for years it's felt like a divide that we'll never cross. And then all of a sudden, one day, we did. And it felt like mm. it happened quite rapidly, except for the people that have been fighting for it for decades. And right. I think healthcare, and I could give you other examples, but that one's such a salient one, that we have to lay the groundwork to match how our politicians feel to how we as Americans feel. Mm. And if you ask people the question, do you think that everyone should have the ability to afford to take care of their family if someone gets sick and keep them healthy? About 80% of Democrats, something like 70% of Republicans, somewhere in between for political independence, say yes. And if you ask them, should people have to use the emergency room to take care of themselves or should they have access to regular source of care with a doctor, vast majority of people say yes. Now, that's not reflected in our political parties, particularly in Washington. Right. And that has less to do with healthcare than it has to do with money in politics, gerrymandering, um, yeah. inadequate representation at the polls, Supreme Court case on how money can be spent in politics. So if we want to get what we want out of healthcare, we've got to fix the way our politics works. We've got to reform that. Mm -hmm. And I think it will happen much more quickly. But it's a long game. We have to be committed to it. And the reason I say we talk about it outside the political process is not that it's not political. It's that people shouldn't have to think about their own health care through a political lens. As in, right. what do you believe about health care? Well, wait a minute. I'm a Republican, so I believe this. Or I'm a Democrat. I believe that. No, in fact, you're not. You're a person. You're a family. And the thing you can believe, whatever you like politically, but it shouldn't affect your ability to take care of your family. Well, one of the things that makes me angriest about the way our current healthcare system works is that there's profiteering, you know, perfectly legal from drug makers to equipment manufacturers. Like right now, states are in bidding wars for equipment. They all need and are paying 10 times more in some cases than they did just a couple of months ago. New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo expressing frustration at the lack of federal coordination as states seek supplies to fight the pandemic. It's like being on eBay with 50 other states bidding on a ventilator. And you see the bid go up because California bid, Illinois bid, Florida bid. New York bids, California rebids. That's literally what we're doing. I mean, how inefficient. Is the free market really the right way to distribute medical equipment and medications? No, of course not. It is if you want only wealthy people and people who live in the right places to get access. Andy, I don't want to believe that anyone really wants that. I mean, that is such an evil, I can't even wrap my head around that that's even a possibility. Right. I mean, I know intellectually that's a possibility, but like my heart and soul, I don't want to believe that, that that's yeah, a possibility. I don't think people would say it that way. I think they would say, but I think that's the consequence of believing that. I don't think anybody would describe that as their belief system. Right. I do think when people say that, the people who say it are people to whom the free market has worked for just fine. And right. they've n probably not lived a life like your mother, who you described, or my wife, the way she grew up, which is that the free market isn't fair to them. And in the coronavirus, one of the things that we had a pledge as a country 
is, look, this is going to be a very tragic set of few years. But if at the end of it, we have more deaths that are from people of color, people who are low income, people who are older, people who are sicker, then it will be a stain. It will be a dark stain Mm. on this period. Mm. And that is what's going to happen unless we really focus on that and make it a very high priority. I mean, it's terrifying to look at the numbers now and think about what they're going to reflect about us 50 years from now, truly. Think about what the lieutenant governor of Texas effectively voiced an opinion which said that if this is about the thinning of the herd, of the older and the sicker, that that ought to be just fine. That's not a verbatim quote, but he said what I think I've heard from others in private conversations. So it's, I'll say, sorry, not sorry about saying we need people who will govern on behalf of all of us, not just the people who voted for them. Let's talk about reform for a second. What does an effective national health care system look like to you? I mean, is there a model out there or, you know, another country that you think is doing something that would be right for America? You know, if I have to pick a country, I usually pick Australia because they have a universal health care coverage system that provides something to everybody, but also allows people, if they want to get different things, to get different things. I also say Australia because if you say, I think we as Americans culturally relate to Australia better than probably anywhere else. Hmm. We as Americans, we distrust government. We love our freedom. We want what we want when we want it. We've got this image of ourselves as sort of frontiers people. And so if you say like Sweden, people say, oh, well, we're not, you know, that's not us. We're a much more diverse country. So I would say this, there's a lot of things we need to do to create a better healthcare system. One of them, I think most of us can agree on is that everybody should have access to healthcare and they should be able to get the healthcare they need affordably. Now, as you, you rightly implied in your question, there are 10 different ways to do it. Right. None of them are perfect. All of them are better than where we are now. Mm. And all of them will take adjustment along the way. And so whether you include insurance companies or don't, how much you pay hospitals and providers or not, how much money you leave for science versus what you don't, how you make sure that it becomes more efficient and user-friendly. Designing that, picking those answers, it's not like picking out a pair of drapes where you say, okay, I want the red ones. It's much more like city planning. It's much more about making a series of decisions that are interdependent upon one another. Right. And it will be something that we'll get 80% right. I believe we'll pass something within the next five or six years. I'm not saying it won't be earlier, but, but let's say five or six years. And I'm quite confident that there'll be a lot wrong with it, but it'll be better than we are today. And what we have to do is have the commitment to going back and fixing and fixing and fixing it till we get it right. And I know that everybody would like there to be a simple answer. Yeah. It should it be Medicare for all? Should it be that? Should it be that? Whatever we choose, all of them are fine. All of them have a series of dozens of other decisions that need to be made in order to make them work. And we need to get at it. But it seems like where we are now, the medical supply chain is not even equipped to handle this crisis. We're talking about like before simple things that Trump could have done or could be doing right now. Why do you think the president has not made stronger use of the Defense Production Act? I think he doesn't want to be seen to be bossing businesses around 
And the only cases where he'll do it is if they show him up and make him look bad. Because I think he relates to business. He relates to big business. The supply chain issues, which have come to bear now, are in some part based on the fact that you can't build everything for every situation. So you can't have an unlimited number of things sitting around hospital beds, nurses who aren't doing anything every day, just sort of sitting around. You can have some contingency planning resources, far more than we had. But part of the consequence of the U.S. being late to this, i.e. getting on it in March instead of January or February, is the other countries that saw this coming started to buy up the supplies in the supply chain earlier. Right. And there's only so many of everything in the world. And we're competing with every other country. And now each state is competing with each other because the federal government can't put any sort of process in place. And that's what happens in a crisis. In a crisis, when there's a shortage, prices bid up, there becomes a black market. And the only way to end that black market is to be much more transparent with who has what and much more demanding of information. And then to produce more using the Defense Production Act. Mm. And the steps that we've seen him take to do the right thing on the Defense Production Act, they're always like a week to 10 days after like everybody else knows he should be doing them. And there's this grand dance we all have to go through to get him to make the decisions that are obvious. That's so and true. in those 10 days, and in those 10 days, we lose a lot of time. We lose more than 10 days, right? Because it's growing exponentially. In 10 days, you lose thousands. Yeah. I mean, if we get to the point where we're losing thousands of people a day, 10 days is catastrophic. I also think that we're getting into this really dangerous place, this paying too much attention to the numbers and not really realizing that each group of numbers consists of an individual who had a family and people that love them. And when we look at the numbers, we lose sight of the humanity of what's happening right now. And so I really want everyone, when we start to hit this apex and we are trying to steal ourselves because the numbers are just such that we can't wrap our heads around it, I want everyone to remember that each one of those digits is a human being with a story and people that love them. And that's the real tragedy in all of this. There's a truism that one death is easier to mourn than 100,000 because we don't know how to think about 100,000 deaths. Yeah. And so things like Boris Johnson, which on the day of our recording, Boris Johnson was just put into the intensive care unit on the date of, that this comes out or the date people are listening to this. I don't know what that status will be. But those sink in as much more powerful reminders when people who are well-known get this because it feels more real to people. Mm. But thinking about the fact that every one of these people is somebody's mom, somebody's dad, somebody's brother, somebody's sister. And look, sadly, Alyssa, many of us already know somebody who died from coronavirus, but many of us know several people. And if you don't, it's quite possible. I hope it doesn't happen, but it's quite possible that you will. And there's certain people in this country who will get it no matter what. There are certain people in this country that will only get it when it happens to them or someone they love because it will become much more visceral. It'll become much more real. And sadly, I think that's going to be part of the common experience for many, many, many Americans. And in the middle of all of this, we have the primary elections underway now and, and a general election coming up in November. Do you think that we're going to be able to vote 
safely come November? So the right thing to do is to allow everybody to vote from home as a precautionary measure. I think one way or the other, we're going to have to have this election and we're going to have to figure out the best ways to do it. And, you know, we already are dealing with an administration that isn't in favor of everybody voting and a president who probably is unlikely to sign a bill that expands voting rights and capabilities and opportunities. Right. So it's really, really, really important that we figure out how to help people vote safely. It's really important that we that everybody steps up and votes this year. I mean, we have a terrible track record of this. And given that if we may be in a situation where it doesn't feel safe for seniors uh, yeah. who are the largest demographic of voters to vote, then if you are able to vote, then you got to vote. I mean, you just have to. People can go to vote.gov to check their registration status, but also find out more information on how they can request an absentee ballot. Andy, I also have to tell you, I have a real concern, and I think everybody should, about elected officials using this for financial gain. I mean, this is the most infuriating thing that we've seen members of Congress sell off or buy stocks specifically after receiving briefings on this crisis. Tonight, calls across the political spectrum for the resignation of Republican Senators Richard Burr of North Carolina and Kelly Loeffler of Georgia. They are facing strong accusations based on financial disclosures they themselves filed that one of the first things they did after they found out just how bad the coronavirus would be during closed door Senate briefings was sell a huge amount of stock right before the market tanked. So I think my question is, how can Americans be confident in the healthcare leadership of America when people who are overseeing it seem to be doing so, so corruptly. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the people that have profiteered off of other people's misery, as we clean out jails of drug offenders and nonviolent criminals, we might want to think about making room for people who have used this as a profit opportunity. Yes. And I say that half seriously, but the truth is these are criminal acts. They should be prosecuted completely, whether they're the examples that you're referring to of people who had information in the Senate and sold stock and made this as a gain, or whether there's people who are hoarding N95 masks mm -hmm. and reselling them for profits. Those kinds of people, when this is all said and done, if you and I have a little bit of anger left in us and we want to figure out a nice place to take that out, that's where I'm going, because I'm not going to forget. And I spend a certain amount of time every day trying to round those people up and figure out who they are and talk to the attorneys general in this country. But I also don't want everybody, to the point of your question, to feel like that that's everybody or even the majority of our elected representatives. I mean, I will say that while it wasn't perfect, the third package that was passed by Congress passed with zero no votes. And we put $2 billion into helping people, helping small businesses, it wasn't a perfect piece of legislation. There's always stuff to criticize. But 
I'm sorry, two trillion dollars. And so this was, I think, and I was close to some of the negotiations, and they're going to have to keep doing it. But there are people out there who are looking out for us. And as I've talked to political leaders, I've said, have open town halls frequently with your constituents. Make sure you hear the problems they're facing. Go show them you're fighting for them and go and get these things done. This is an opportunity for them to build trust when, in, in point of fact, we know that they're not very trusted. That's a great point. I mean, I think we all know that we could never go back to where we were before this crisis started. I keep trying to figure out exactly what the lessons we need to learn are from this tragedy. So what do you think needs to change the day after we find a vaccine? What needs to change? I think, first of all, we're going to come through this. The vast, vast majority of us are going to come through this. I think there's going to be two questions that we're going to be faced with principally. One is, how many people did we lose? And did we do everything we can to minimize that? And secondly, how did we behave to make things better? How did we help people? What will be remembered about this period of time? And I think we're all going to, in a very personal way, ask that question and look for that. And as far as the broader public health lessons, I think there are probably a few things that we will do and take stock of. I mean, you know, we're still taking off our shoes in airports 19 years after 9-11. So we tend not to make the exact same mistake that we've made in the past. We tend to learn kind of a very literal lesson. And so we'll probably have more ventilators and N95 masks than we'll ever need. But that's not really the point, is it? The point is to be aware and prepare for the kinds of things that create these kind of risks, to have the contingency plans in place, to have a structure that's ready to go so that we can contain an outbreak rather than have it spread across the population as wildly as it's spread. San Francisco sheltered in place very early. How did your city manage to keep infections at such a low rate? Good morning, Stephanie. I think that uh, the very early shelter in place was exactly uh, what has blunted the curve here in San Francisco. Uh, Very brave, heroic uh, decision-making by our Department of Public Health and and the mayor of San Francisco. In fact, the mayors of all of the Bay Area cities and counties uh, made that decision uh, on the 17th of March, just a few days after the very first case. And in the case of San Francisco, uh, fully eight days before the first uh, death from uh, COVID-19. And then I think, you know, Maybe we'll also learn how much we care for our neighbors, how much they care for us. Maybe we'll learn that some of the differences that have been plaguing our society are not so important. I'm not kidding myself. I think we'll fall back into some of the same bad habits and bad patterns, but we should try hard not to let ourselves become so divided again. So, I mean, anyone that doesn't follow Andy Slavitt on Twitter, should. Uh, Because one of the things I love so much about following him is his ability to speak honestly about the issues at hand, but he always gives people hope. And I think hope is an incredibly important thing, especially in these times. And another place where he is able to do this, where you really feel a sense of hope, from Andy is in his new podcast, which is called In the Bubble. Andy, tell us a little bit about In the Bubble. Thank you. 
I started it because my 18 year old said to me, Hey dad, let's do a podcast together. Should we do a podcast? And, you know, I was actually more excited about doing something with him than I was about even the podcast. But what I soon kind of saw as the vision for this was, I'll call it 50% Winston Churchill, 50% Fred Rogers. So how do you bring people the information they need? How do you communicate with people directly, but in a caring way and in a helpful way? And, you know, my image is is the kind of thing where people can sit around with their families, including kids, including older adults, and listen to it together and share it together because it's, it's not so scary. It's talking about how we get through these times in a way that's family-oriented. So my 18-year-old is my co-host. He's not super communicative, but that's kind of part of his charm. <laughs> you get a little bit of insight into our bubble and our family, recognize everybody's feeling a little bit in their bubble. And Alyssa, I'd say one more thing, and this is so you'll relate to this because it's so much you as well, which is I have the privilege of being in a place in, my, in life where everybody returns my phone call if they're not trying to get a hold of me. And so if it's a senator or someone in the White House or a governor or a scientist, I have access to those people. And I made a decision that I didn't want to be an insider. Rather than be an insider, I wanted to be a helper. It sort of goes to that Fred Rogers line yeah. of look for the helpers. Yeah. And so if I hear something that is of interest to people and that will help people or feel like they need to know, I don't much care if I protect some relationship. I think many people keep these things to themselves because they want to protect these relationships. I don't because I think that goes along with, with the privilege. And so I will do on my Twitter feed and likewise on the show, like I'll call someone up directly and say, Hey, do you mind if I record for the podcast? And I'm talking to governor Murphy, who's on this most recent podcast, you know, right from the heart of it all and just bring it to people directly and then try to give people some context for the things they're seeing and hearing. Yeah. I think that's brilliant. And it's also giving people that wouldn't normally have access to, you know, those politicians an inside view. And I think you said something really poignant about being a helper. And I am of the belief that good leaders will always lead by service. And I think that that's what makes you a great leader, Andy Slavitt, is that you, you, to say. you lead by service. And so I thank you so much for being part of the podcast and for giving us all the honest truth, but in a way that still allows us to be hopeful. Everyone check out In the Bubble. Our collective failure to meet this challenge, year after year, decade after decade, has led us to the breaking point. Everyone understands the extraordinary hardships that are placed on the uninsured who live every day just one accident or illness away from bankruptcy. These are not primarily people on welfare. These are middle-class Americans. Some can't get insurance on the job. Others are self-employed and can't afford it since buying insurance on your own costs you three times as much as the coverage you get from your employer. Many other Americans who are willing and able to pay are still denied insurance due to previous illnesses or conditions that insurance companies decide are too risky or too expensive to cover. We are the only democracy, the only advanced democracy on earth, the only wealthy nation 
that allows such hardship for millions of its people. Health care is a human right, period. And while we have many visions of how to get there, until we accept that basic nonpartisan principle, we won't be able to do it. After the coronavirus, we need to demand that each of us take partisan and candidate affiliations out of this discussion and find a solution that ensures everyone has access to affordable, quality health care. Healthy is not for Democrats. It is not for Republicans. It is not for Democratic Socialists or Independents. It is for humans. I am not healthy unless you are healthy. You are not healthy unless I am healthy. We can do this together. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 